Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Vehicle, 
look like a little uh, uh, station wagon. They described basically the same guy. Well, we couldn't figure out how he got from here to here. What we determined later through our investigation is he went down Glenwood so he could not be detected. He went down Glenwood, went over to Englewood, 12th Street. He took 12th Street, went west, continued west to, to Englewood Street, which makes a curve and comes around and connects back out on Main Street. He makes this long journey around and comes here to the bulk plant. The reason why he went to the bulk plant, one of the people who wronged him in, his, in this whole situation. The guy that, that was shot here, one of them here, there was uh, two people shot, one of them was a fatal, there was a third person shot at. This bulk plant had a dock on it. Our gene went into that bulk plant and shot Rusty Taylor. Rusty was the owner of the Taylor Oil Company. He was also owner of a convenience store that was out here on East Main. He went inside the office. Rusty was behind his desk talking to another customer, Craig Bailey. Craig was a good friend of Rusty, but he was there visiting with him. Archie walked into the front office. He had to go into a second office. The little office was kind of squared off. The bulk plant was over here on this side, and what they had over there was barrels of oil. He walked in the door. Rusty was behind his desk talking to Craig, basically in this angle, like we're facing the instructor here, Mr. Harris. RG steps in with his 22. He fires at Rusty. Rusty gets hit. He drops under his desk. He does not see Craig Bailey sitting over against the wall. Craig was just sitting against the wall in a chair talking to Rusty. As RG was turned around to walk out, we had a second fatality. J.D. Chapman. Chapman was a firefighter for the Russell Police Department. J.D., who I knew very well and a close friend, that was his day off. Firefighters have a 24 on, 48 off. He worked for, for Taylor driving a bulk truck delivering gas. J.D. had just returned from a fire call. He got called to respond to a fire. I don't remember where the fire was at. Who did he come back? When he walked into the office from, the, from out on the bulk side of it out of the warehouse, he grabbed the door handle. When J.D. grabbed the doorknob and he pulled the door open, he met Archie Simmons. Archie just turned around and fired one round. 22 round went right here by J.D.'s nose and below his eye. Stopped him instantly. When J.D. fell backwards, his hand was still, because of the motor reflex, his hand, and this is something you'll learn sometimes when you do these crime scenes, his hand was in the motion of the last thing he'd done before he died. He grabbed that doorknob and was going to step in the office. He had no clue what was going on. But when he opened up the door, Archie just turned around, shot him, and then he went out the door through the warehouse and was going off about to leave. The clerk, she was in a bathroom on the far side of the warehouse and had just come out of the bathroom. He saw her. She saw him. He fired rounds at her. She ducked behind the barrels of oil, and then he took off. She was the closest thing we had at that time to a real good witness of what happened. I responded to this crime scene. We had been for that day, guys, I think for, for about a two-hour period, there was nothing but the sound of sirens. Sirens everywhere. We were flying by the seat of our pants. We've had two shootings right here inside of town. Everybody, the guys from the sheriff's office, when they heard the call, everybody was going anywhere they needed to be to try to help. 
we had, a, we had a little bit of chaos. I picked up this witness, taking her to the office so we could get her interviewed. As I was getting back to the office, no sooner than I pulled up to the office to drop her off, I was going to do a formal interview with her and try to get some more information about my suspect and what he looked like. Just as I was dropping her off at the PD, got her out the front door, she was going in. We had a third shooting. The third shooting occurred at Sailor's Convenience Store. The think of a landmark now on East Main Street, there's a, there's a Dollar General and a Whitson Morgan uh, used car lot across from Walmart. Approximately in between those two, that's where the, the convenience store was at. The reason our gene went to that convenience store is that's where he used to work as a nighttime clerk. He went inside there and was going to shoot the day clerk. The day clerk picked up a chair and trying to throw it at our gene. He and then picked up, started picking up cans of something off the shelf, beans, whatever, started chunking them in our gene. We still, we had the chair. He fired around and the chair deflected the bullet wound, but Sailor was injured. They were not life-threatening, but they had been shot by a 22. If you've ever been shot by a 22, it don't care how big a bullet it is, it hurts because it's hot. And where he got shot at, it, it's enough to make you think about that. At that time, we had two active crime scenes going on over here. We had ambulances running in all different directions to try to pick up the one. We had a fatal over here, but we had another that shot at, which was Rusty Taylor, who was the guy who owned this service station here. As we're coming to this crime scene, now that I'm, I'm headed back to here because we've got an officer, uh, Alan Bradley was taking care of this crime scene, I started heading to the, to the uh, convenience store. No sooner I got there, Jay Winter, Jay was the administrator for the jail at that time, before he became sheriff. But Jay took over that crime scene for me. And the reason why, no sooner did Jay got there to take care of it, Firestone. Right behind Firestone, back here off of Bernard Way, is a, is a trucking firm. Woodline Motor Freight. Our Gene Simmons used to work at, our, at Woodline Motor Freight. The problem with our Gene at that time, and what we learned later, he had a female for a supervisor. His lack of control, females were not to be boss of him. He couldn't stand it that this lady, Miss Butts, was his supervisor. He didn't get along well. He was a very controlling person. He did it with his family. Uh, Y'all read some of the stuff, I'm sure, in, uh, in that, and probably heard a few stories. I, I, I'd just like to tell you that some of the stuff you read in the, in some of the on Facebook or in uh, uh, when you're trying to uh, look it up on Google. Use a lot of that stuff with a grain of salt because a lot of it, uh, there was a book written about all this called Zero to the Bone. I'm standing here telling you I would not recommend that book. You can get it and read it, but it's a fairy tale. Those guys wrote that book to get it out right quick because of Martin Simmons being captured. Wrote about what it was in his mind and why he did some of the things he did. Guys, I'm here to tell you when myself and Captain Caldwell, when we had the opportunity to be around Martin Simmons, he wasn't going to tell us anything about who, what, or where, or what he done with his family. And we were working to try to figure this out after over here. This ended up being my crime scene working at his Woodline Motor Freight. He had shot Miss Butts, who was his supervisor, shot her there at her desk, and then went into a back room. There was a lady who was back in the back of the office and called her office. Back then, we dispatched our officers from the PD. Sheriff's office dispatched their own, so we had two dispatch centers. But 
Our Gene Simmons went in that back room and told her to call the Russell Police Department. He was going to turn himself in. And he had his 22 pistol with him, or revolver that he had with him. When we arrived on the crime scene here on the back dock, we went in there, myself, Chief Johnson, and there was a trooper at the time, Jerry Roberts. Jerry was just about ready to shoot our Gene Simmons through a plexiglass. He saw Gene in a back room. He had the girl on the phone, and he had the gun pointed at her. And our thought mind was, he's going to do something. He won't give up, but we've got that relayed to us about what he was trying to do. Then, before he would give up, he wanted to know what the chief was wearing, because that's who he turned himself into. Luckily, the radio operator working that day, Donna, she knew what the chief wore that day, our, our police chief. Describing gray hair, a white-haired gentleman wearing a blue sweater. I remember that, a blue sweater and a white shirt. He turned himself into RG, to, to the chief, handed him the gun. We took him into custody, took him to the PD. He, went, he gave us a bogus name. We couldn't find him in the system back then. He wouldn't say nothing more. When we ran the tag on his little station wagon that was parked there at the Woodline Motor Freight, we then found it returned to the Ronald Gene Simmons in Dover, an address in Dover, Mockingbird Lane, I think, up off of Broomfield. Okay, so now we've got a, we've got a fatal here, we have a fatal here, we've got a near fatal here. We weren't sure that Miss Butts was going to make it. She survived. Uh, she died here just a few years ago, but she had brain damage because he shot her in the head. We found that he was shooting, he was finding that that 22 just wasn't quite doing what he thought it was supposed to uh, with the rounds and the way he was firing. The autopsies that were done describe each individual here about how many times our gene had to shoot him. He had two 22s he was using. He had made a mention that he just, it, it wasn't what he thought it was going to do. And some people he shot more than once. Some people he shot five or six times. After all this, we've got Archie Simmons back at RPD. We're trying to find out who he is. He wouldn't talk to us. He wouldn't tell us nothing. Uh, we, we interviewed him at great length, trying to get something from him, find out what was going on, trying to figure out, one, why all these particular people. Later on, we understood why. And what I was telling you was what we learned from the shooting, why these particular people were pointed out by him. We got him over to the sheriff's office, you know, the processing and try to further interview him. And it, it was there then that we discovered we might need to go up to his home in Dover and check on his family. Because this was Monday now, school's back open, and we had noticed too that the kids could not come back to, to school. That was a little concerning. I then, after, after we left here, I went then with another detective myself. We went with the sheriff's office because we went over we went over to the sheriff's office with them to try to figure out what was going on and this guy and why and what and where. After that, this is when we discovered we wanted to go over to his home place and kind of check on his family. I'm Captain Caldwell Willis. I started the law enforcement in 1970. I retired in 2009, so that tells you about how long I was in the law enforcement. Uh, at the time that this occurred, I was a uh, lieutenant and the head of the criminal investigation division with Polk County Sheriff's Office. As Scotty said, we was running like a bunch of beads and beehive all over the city of Russellville at that time. After he was taken into custody, and we determined through talking to the school that his children hadn't come to school, so we went to the residence for a welfare check. When we got to the residence off Broomfield Road, uh, the house setting up on a hill 
on the north side. We got to the house, nobody answered. Vehicles all over the yard. We got to running license plates, numbers of the vehicles, trying to find out who was there. There was a window open on the south side leading into the living room area. Raised the window up that was unlocked, pulled the curtain back, we could see bodies in the house. We went into the residence to check it. There was a male laying just inside the living room, or in the living room, just inside the door. A sliding door, and they put a, he put a broom handle inside the door so it couldn't be opened. There was a white female laying at a Christmas tree, had blankets over her. There was a white female in the kitchen, uh, in the kitchen laid up against the wall with a blanket over her. There was a white male in the kitchen, laid up in the floor with a blanket on it, and there was a small child in a bedroom covered up with a blanket who had a ligature, a fishing cord tied around her neck where she'd been strangled. We'd done a crime scene search of the whole thing. From what we could determine on this, they had came in for Christmas. We still had nine people that was unaccounted for. His four children that had been to school, his son, his wife, plus two small babies, plus another little boy that was his son, his grandson. So during the process of doing the investigation, there was holes knocked in the wall, there was cabinets torn off inside the house where it was tore up. From what we can determine that his daughter, uh, or his son-in-law and his daughter came there, and as they came into the house, they had a small child, a little baby. They was in the kitchen area. He shot them. He shot his daughter, uh, daughter-in-law, uh, I think eight times in the face. She was against the wall and she was fighting. There was blood all over her hands and her face and her clothes and everything where she was fighting trying to stay alive. He shot his son there three times, I think, or two in the head and the chest. They was laying there. He covered them up. They had a small baby. He strangled the baby and put it. They had uh, trash cans inside the house full of water. He submerged the babies in the water and drowned them. Okay? I think the baby was like 20 months old, 21, something like that, 22 months old. He stayed there at the house. Well, his daughter, his son-in-law, their small baby, which was 20 or 21 months old, plus his daughter by his daughter because he had sexually molested his daughter and had a daughter by her. This happened in Arizona and the child welfare heir had got after him and was doing a case so they moved him there to keep him from being arrested. So they moved to here. So when they came into the house, his son-in-law was still outside. He shot his daughter in the face at the Christmas tree. She fell right in front of the Christmas tree. His son-in-law come running into the door when he did. He had stepped behind the door. When he come in, he shot him right beside the head and killed him and he hit the floor. He then strangled his daughter by his daughter, and then he smiled her small baby they drowned he had drowned him or her, I don't remember his him. We accounted for these people that said we still had nine people we was unaccounted for. So we had to come back, we obtained a search warrant, went back to the residence. We didn't know where they was, where they was in the Pond. We had teams that were searching the fields and stuff around there. Teams that was dragging the pond. So as we were searching for the area there, outside, inside the house, down the hallway there, the master bedroom where our Gene and his wife had stayed, across from it was another bedroom. Well, in this bedroom, in the bed, there was blood all over the bed. And in the bedroom on the south side, there was blood on the blood and there was splatters 
all over the wall, the ceiling, and all over the room. Well, what we've come to find out, he had walked down the hallway that morning after his children had went to school. He had killed his wife, shot her in the head. He turned around and shot his son that was in the other room. Then he turned around. His son, he didn't kill him instantly. He started fighting. He beat him with a piece of pipe there, and that's the reason the blood splatters was all over the wall and the ceiling and everything. It was all over the room. After he killed him, he then strangled his small grandson by his son there. He took them out. There was a hole dug in the ground out there that we found during the time of the crime scene search there. That that's where he ended up putting them down. He stayed in the house then. Now, you got to remember, this happened before he killed his two grandchildren, his daughter, and his son-in-law and all of them at Christmas. This happened prior. He waited on his children to come in from school. He kept them outside. He called them in one at a time into the room, and he strangled the ligatures. He used cords, uh, necktie, and everything, strangled each one of them there. He called one of them in, and he strangled them. He killed all four of them. After he killed them, he took them out to this hole that was in the ground that they had dug. He threw them in the hole. He take, poured kerosene in on top of them. He put dirt, rocks, barbed wire, more dirt, rocks, and barbed wire all through this, and then the top he took and put tin over the top of it. Well, during a crime scene search of this place, we discovered a grave. Lieutenant Bradley at that time, which he was a captain, or major when he retired from the sheriff's office, he found it, he contacted us, and we went outside, started digging through the grave. As we dug down into it, you could tell it was a fresh grave, because about two foot down inside the hole, there was moss growing on the side of the dirt which the moss is not going to be growing two foot under the ground like that. So we knew it was a fresh grave. And you could smell the kerosene. We had to use a winch on the truck to pull the barbed wire and stuff out so we could get to it. We got down into the hole, and this is where the bodies was laying in there. All, all of them was laying on top of them. We still had two children that we did not account for, the two small babies then. We went to searching. There were some old cars down there, and I said, we need to search the old cars. We ended up having to punch the trunks. Well, when we punched the trunks of the cars, raised the trunk up, and inside the back of the car, there was a garbage bag there. I took and cut to open the bar garbage bag, but it was taped up, and there was one of the small infants inside it. We popped the trunk on the other one, same thing, inside a black garbage bag wrapped up, taped with this other small child in there. So at that time, he had... From the start of it, he had killed his son, his wife, and his grandson at home that morning. He took them out and threw them in the ground. Then when his children come in from school, he killed them, threw them in the hole, covered them up. He sat there at the house for a couple days until his daughter-in-law and son came. Then he killed them, and then when his daughter, son-in-law, daughter by him, and the other grandbaby came, he killed them. He stayed there a couple more days, and that's when he come to Russell and started his shooting spree in Russellville. So he had, he had stayed there, and from what we can determine from things, he was very dominant. I'm telling you, you, you just you don't know. The Christmas presents was still in the house, in the closet, and stuff like that. Uh, through the letter, his wife was going to leave him from what we, through what we read in the letters and stuff. And he could not stand that. He loved his daughter, you know, to the point, and he could not see any of them leaving. He went ballistic when she got married because he wanted to marry her and keep her there himself for his second wife. So 
He could not stand this, and that's I think that's what really touched him off when he his wife was going to leave him, and I think that's when he went on the killing spree. He wasn't going to let him leave or nothing else, and he decided to kill all of them. And that was that was pretty well synopsis. Y'all have read there or looked at it now. That's pretty well what happened through the whole thing. He wanted to die, and then he stayed on death row two years before he finally died. If the kids hadn't showed up for school, you know, a couple days, they would probably have been doing a welfare check. They would have been contacting somebody, what's going on, and they would have been somebody going to the house. They did have a detective who went up to the house the first time to try to see if he could get a hold of anybody. He could get no answers there, but talked about all the different vehicles that were in the yard that were not related to there. The daughter, <coughs> the incestuous daughter, he had a relationship and child by. She lived, she was married and now lived down in South Arkansas. That car was there, a couple other vehicles there, but they weren't tied to the house. So that raised a little question, but we couldn't get anybody, like I said, couldn't get anybody to come to the door. There was no answer. So that's the other thing that kind of started it, is that one, they didn't show up for school, those four kids, and the teachers were concerned that they hadn't been to school. That would give given us this information. So we developed that, plus what had happened in town, and not being able to contact anybody. And we didn't have the luxury that you kids have now. Everybody's got a cell phone. We didn't have cell phones. You ever heard of pay phone? That's both what we had. Pay phone on every corner. You go to the phone and call somebody. You didn't have the instantaneous contact that we have now. And by, by the kids not coming to school, we called the home number. They actually had home phones in, you know, the number at home. Couldn't get a hold of no one. She was working, mother was trying to get a job. Like I said, she, RG was very controlling. He controlled that family and everything they did. The next oldest daughter that lived there that was still going to school, she was a spitting image of her mother. But we, I think in some of the things that we saw in the letters, the next one he was going to probably try to have some kind of relationship with was going to be her. She was a junior. Junior at school at Dover, pretty girl, looked just like her mother. And of course, RG had a he had a controlling thing over his wife, and she tried to protect the kids. She in fact even wrote a letter, like Captain referred to. There was a letter we found where she talked about she getting ready to leave. Well, she, yeah, she had wrote that to her sister. But I mean, they, he was so dominant. I mean, they couldn't do anything. I mean, you got to understand that. I mean, it was it was just strictly he had his thumb on. <coughs> And, uh, and that's the reason he couldn't stand the thought of anybody was going to leave. And that's the reason I think what set him off on that. And after he'd done that and stayed there a couple days after he killed his entire family, he decided to go to Russell and take revenge on the people he thought had done him wrong in Russellville. The Kathy Kendrick, who I knew personally, I grew up with her. She was a part of my family when we moved here in Russellville back in 1963. Her father, her mother, and her brother, her sisters lived with us. I personally knew Kathy, knew that she grew up, and then now was working. She had a child. They, uh, Kathy was working at a place where R.G. had seen her. He had an infatuation with her. He had his eyes on Kathy. We had got a couple calls where he showed up where she was living in the University of States. He would leave flowers on her doorstep. She'd come up, open the door, go to work, and there's these flowers laying. He'd leave her cards. 
got to where he was just constantly after Kathy. She spurned him, didn't want to have anything to do with him. That upset him. He had had no control over her. That was another thing. He was losing control. And when Kathy spurned him, she called us a couple of times. We had complaints on our gene where he would come to her house. She'd come out the door and he'd be standing there. If he wasn't leaving flowers, he was standing there. Bothered her. He tracked her down to figure out where she was now working. She had just started at the law firm as a receptionist at the front desk. But that was the first person he went after. The one that had spurned him. Of course, like Captain said, he stayed up there with those bodies and his family for those couple of days in that house. And you could see some of the rage. When I went inside there, we boosted up the sheriff and put him in the window of that house to go look and open up that door so we could get inside. When we got inside there, you could tell, he, he was just kind of doing a little survivalist. When he'd eat a meal, he'd put it in a bread bag, tighten a knot and leave it. He was doing that so that the critters got inside the house, they, they wouldn't smell it, smell things and start trying to get in there. The one window was open we was able to get into, but the rest of it, he beat the, he beat the cabinet doors off the kitchen, he punched holes in the ceiling, wherever, it was crowbar. He's, it, you could tell he was thinking about things as the time was going on. And stayed there in that house, no heat of any kind, he, it was kind of rural head. Big old blue 55 gallon barrels that they had scattered through the house for water. That's what they did for water. He made those kids, because they did not have running water, they had a, a, a privy, as we call it, looked at it, it was called an outhouse. Outside, they had no inside plumbing. They would have to go out there. He made those kids dig a little tree, and then was gonna set the house house on top of it. That was the thought that they were doing this work for. When they got home from school, they didn't have a cell phone to get on and, and Google or do anything. They had their homework to do, and then he had an assignment. They were out there digging that latrine. They dug, dug it about four foot deep. Rock. Those kids were out there picking shovel, digging their own grave, and they didn't realize it. You know, he stayed there for three days at least from the time that you know, he killed his family, and then he waited on the rest of his family before he killed them, and then he stayed there another day or two before he came to Russellville. Uh, during all this time, you know, he's at this house. So, you know, who knows what's going through his mind. You know, when he went to trial, he wanted the death penalty. He wanted to die. You know, I mean, that was his goal. He wanted to die. Uh, really, I think he wanted to be shot. But I think he decided to give himself up. And then, uh, but the 22, when you do look at the autopsy reports, you're going to find some of them that he shot five and six times. I think, I think the one he may have shot eight times. I know his son, he shot him, or son in always shot him once in the head because he dropped this as he came through the door. Uh, the daughter, I think he shot her two or three times. And then the son, he shot him two or three times. But all the other children and stuff, uh, as far as his children, man, he strangled all of them to death. And like I told you earlier, the people in Russellville, the only one that had nothing to do with R. Gene Simmons at all and his problems was that fireman, J.D. Chapman. Was collateral damage. Wrong place, wrong man. JD walked in that door after RG shot Rusty Taylor in his office. And when Chapman grabbed that doorknob to step inside, he had no idea what he was walking into. When he opened up that door, that was a threat to him. So he shot JD. JD had nothing to do with RG and all his other problems. He shot Rusty because that was his boss where he worked as a not as a clerk at that little convenience store 
in town. He shot Joyce Butts because when he worked there at Woodline Motor Freight, he was an exemplary employee, but he could not stand. He was a sergeant, a master sergeant in the Air Force. He was used to being in a little bit of control. And once he got into the civilian world, he lost that, and the only way he could do any control was through his family. And when he worked with Joyce Butts, she was over him. And he had issues with Joyce. That's why he shot her. The guy at the convenience store, that was the guy that was working the shift that our gene really wanted, but he didn't get it. This guy had took it out on him. Like I said, the only of those of the four there in Russellville, the only one that had nothing to do with this whole thing was the fireman. He just happened to be at the right place at the wrong time. And to that day, he's buried in a pauper grave in Lincoln County. Right across from the penitentiary, if you've got driving down Highway 65, on by the penitentiary. Before you get to the penitentiary, right there on the right, and for the life of me, I cannot remember the name of the little cemetery, but it's there in Lincoln County. That's where they bury the paupers, ones who nobody likes. In Russellville, you know, I was at the office uh, working, like I said, in criminal investigation, and me and my investigator, <coughs> and you know, we got the call, the first call coming on shooting, well, it doesn't matter where it's in the city, the county, or what, you know, we all went to respond. Well, we started responding, well, the next thing another one, the next thing another one, and the next thing another one, we ended up with four shootings, you know, in Russellville. And, you know, officers going every direction. Uh, and then, like I said, then it leads up to what we had up there. At the time, uh, and it still may be, uh, this was the worst family massacre in the nation's history. Uh, and I mean, it may still be. Uh, with a single family? Yeah, with a single family. We had every news media you could think of across oh. the United States. In the world. Yeah, they was everywhere from here and all this thing. But like I said, it was the worst family mass murder. A suggestion to for y'all to get on Amazon. There's a book written by a good friend of mine, Jim Moore. Jim used to work for one of the radio stations here back years ago. But Jim wrote a book called Rampage. If you get an opportunity to find it on Amazon, look it up. Jim took Sheriff's Office case files, he took the RPD case files that we had. And he wrote a book about it. That is the closest to reality about what happened. It's a it's only like a 260-page book. Good book to read. Hey, I worked law enforcement, like I said, from 1970 to 2009. I don't know how many homicide cases I worked. You never get used to it. It didn't bother me as bad with adults, but when you go seeing small children, I worked a lot of cases where small children was murdered. You know. That bothers you more than anything, or it did me. And that bothered me more than anything when you go to a crime scene or just like this, and you got a small baby who's a 20, 20 month old, and kids who was in school, and grandkids. Their life was just starting. They never had a chance to enjoy anything in life. I don't know how you feel, and, and if you look at it, guns is not the problem in this country. You can lay any gun in the world down right there on that floor gun's not going to hurt a person. It's the person who picks it up. It's society is the problem with this country now. Society. People have no value for life anymore. And it's not going to get any better until things change. Anyway. If you decide to get into law enforcement, you're not doing it for the money. No. I guarantee you that. You're not getting You have to have a will and want to do this job. I enjoyed going to work every day. As I still do. I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the challenge. You know, you go in and you work in cases. 
You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. We we dealt with a lot of good people. I'm telling you. I mean, I, we dealt with a lot of good people. He was in the county and I was in the city. There was no barrier there. If he needed help, I'd help him, regardless of where it was at. He'd do the same thing. All I'd have to do is, if he hurt, you want me to help you? I'd never turn down help. We helped one another, and that's the way we did back then. We still do to a degree. It's changed a little bit, but there was no barrier with him being a sheriff's deputy, and I was a, a city officer at the time. I was there. I was inside that home. I saw the carnage inside that house. Knew the things that happened around there. When we saw what we had here, we, together as a group, went together up there to see if we could help them offer assistance. We had to go to do the trial on our Gene Simmons change of venue. They couldn't do it in Polk County because this is where all the homicides happened. They afraid that our Gene couldn't get a good chance of getting a fair trial. So we moved it to uh, Franklin County. Clark, hmm? Clarksville. Clarksville and Franklin. Yeah, we had one yeah. Clarksville. They moved another one in Franklin yeah. County. But the cases were moved to those courtrooms to trial. Simmons' demeanor like in jail. He was quiet. You know, he, he let his beard grow, his hair grow. He never said a word. You could get him out and try to talk to him. Nothing. He was just, I mean, just like a model of law, more or less. He hurt the people he wanted to hurt. Yeah, and that was it. I mean, he never, he never, he never, to my knowledge, expressed a reason why he done it. The only way we was determined, able to determine why he done it was from interviewing witnesses and, and stuff and, and running backgrounds, you know, and things that we had heard and then even through school, the letters that we got that he had sent in, his wife had sent her sister and things like that. That's how we was able to put a lot of the stuff together. Um, because he wouldn't tell us nothing. Nothing. He had, there was a, uh, there was a uh, journalist on Channel 11, Ann Jansen. He was infatuated with her from only down the penitentiary. He was allowed to have color TV and cable. He was in death row in their single cell. He would see her on TV, and he got a message to her. He wanted to talk to her. Everybody was excited because here, R. Gene Simmons was going to tell her everything. And he even mentioned that he was infatuated with her. He'd watch her on TV and he was infatuated and wanted her there. Well, a lot of people thought that, okay, Ann's going to get the scoop. This will be the ultimate thing as a journalist. I'm going to get to talk to the mass murderer and find out what's going on. And it never happened. He never told the story, period. He kept it to himself. We had a trooper that was just getting ready to bear down on him and shoot him because he was in that back room with that girl back there, kind of holding her hostage and making her make a phone call. That trooper, to this day, God rest his soul, and I knew Jerry for a long, long time. He was going to drop our chief Simmons. He would have dropped him. He'd been, we would not have to worry about it, but our chief, and I can say this now because he's long gone, but I'm still around. Chief stepped right in front of Jerry because Jerry was going to shoot through a plexiglass and drop our gene. And the chief stepped in front of him to go in there and get the gun. And he said a few back then, we had a chief that was uh, kind of to the point, he didn't mince words, and reached up there and took it from him. If he would have had us, if he had a, say, a 357 or a 45, something like that, or a bigger caliber gun, he probably would have killed himself. I mean, you know, good chance. Because, but like I said, he knew he'd been shooting people and they hadn't died with a 22 and how many times he had shot his own daughter and, and them, and they lived through it with a 22. I think that's the reason. He's afraid. 
Yeah. Hurt himself, suffer, be a vegetable or whatever. And yeah. I think that's the reason. And he didn't want that. He was not in control. But I enjoyed this job. And the reason why, I wake up every day not knowing what my day's going to be. I never know from one day to the next what I'm going to get. I can have a, a, a eight hours of nothing but boredom. But I can have 15 seconds of an adrenaline rush that you just can't describe. Okay? And when I do this job, I've done this job, it's, it's, I, I don't know anything else. And I'm here not because of the money, but I enjoy my job. We've taken a lot of y'all's time, but it was an enjoyable being able to stand here and talk to y'all because not often do we get to talk about something like this. And I think it would be, if I was in your shoes, to be able to see someone who was still around to talk about something like this. Um, I don't get to talk about it much. This is a good opportunity for me. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.